Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All righty then. And hello and welcome back from your weekend. So here's what we're going to do. Right now I'm going to give you the phone number because we are, I'm taking your calls until about 1.30 today. I'll be taking your calls, assuming you're listening here at 1 o'clock on Monday. Uh, I'll be taking your calls about your election anxiety, your pre-election anxiety. Specifically any questions, comments, issues you have here in Connecticut. Whether it's launch signs or robocalls or you just want to know what's going to happen, what the different scenarios are. You're worried about things that might happen at the polls. You might be challenged at the polls. I will do my best either just to put your comments on the air or if I have something constructive to say, I will say it. Uh, and if I know the answer to a question, I will give it. How's that sound? Uh, so 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Call now. Call now. you get right on the air. Um, and don't call later because later, specifically slightly after 1.30, we're going to put on the air an interview we've already recorded with Lewis Black. So we know it's good, the comedian Lewis Black. We recorded it, I think, last Wednesday, just for you, just for you to hear right now. We've been holding it. We've been saving it for this moment. So it's really good. You're going to like that. But if you want to do, like, phone calls about tomorrow, you have to do them now. Once again, I'll give you out the, give out the number, 860 Seven two six six. I'm personally more knowledgeable about the Connecticut election, so I can have a better conversation with you about that. So, I mean, if there's things that you want to say about Georgia or whatever, I mean, go ahead. But, um, but uh, you know, as, as much as possible, I think it would be fun to talk about what's going to happen tomorrow here in the state. Uh, and I have some very strong and specific thoughts of my own about that. But before I say anything like that, I should also tell you that we have this survey floating around right now about our show. And if you see this survey, it's done by SurveyMonkey, or we, we are using SurveyMonkey to do it. You know, they don't actually give you a monkey, or you don't really get to work with a monkey at all, which I found kind of disappointing. I thought there would be a monkey involved at some level, but there's not. And they should tell you that right up front. But uh, it's a survey kind of about what you like and what you don't like about our show. For example, you might not like the fact that I'm talking right now. Uh, there are a number of people <laughs> on SurveyMonkey who don't like it if I talk too much. Now, the reason I'm talking right now is I don't quite have a couple of calls uh, up on the board. And then I'll stop talking. Uh, but anyway, uh, the uh, if, if you see this survey, I'll give you – I can give you the URL – but you're not going to use the URL. You're not even going to write down the URL. I think the best way to find the survey is, first of all, if you get our station email, then you're going to get the survey. If you're on the interwebs, we tweet it out, I think, at WNPR Colin all the time, like once a day, I mean. Carlos does that. And then I've been putting it up on my Colin McEnroe page on Facebook. And uh, we also put it on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. It's a big green thing. If you see green, click on it. Takes um, the average time to fill it out is eight minutes. Uh, I forget how many questions there are. I think there's 15 questions. You just rip right through them. All right, here we go. Let's uh, go right to the phones here, and we'll start with Alicia from Torrington. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. 
Uh, thanks for having me. Sure. So my question is about the poll challengers. For those who don't know, can you explain a little bit about what poll challengers are and how they might affect us at the polls? Right. Well, they're typically not used. I mean, what is being suggested here by candidate Stefanowski is that um, that, that he would, I mean, there often are observers at the polls. He's talking about specifically having challenges there, challengers there to challenge uh, people's uh, eligibility to vote. Um, my understanding of this, and the Secretary of the State has put out a clarifying statement about this, uh, but my understanding about it is that, first of all, I think the pe- people who ch- the challenge has to take place under oath. This is not a casual thing where you go, you know, I don't think he really lives there on Belknap. Um, this is not a casual thing. The, the thing that I would say, first of all, is the moderators have gone through extra training. All the poll moderators have gone through extra training uh, about stuff like this. They will be ready to handle that kind of thing. Um, the challenge has to be a significant one. In other words, I think the challenger has to say maybe even under oath, I'm not sure, um, that he or she has you know, really a strong reason to suppose that this voter is ineligible. But the most important thing for everybody to know, if it does happen, and I don't anticipate this happening on a widespread basis. And my guess is that if if there's going to be some organized effort to do this by by the Stefanowski campaign, it'll happen in the cities. Um, but nobody should leave without filling out a ballot. So there's a legal provision what's called for what's called a challenge ballot. There's a couple of different kinds of ballots you can do, a provisional ballot and a challenge ballot. You may be eligible to fill out both of them, but definitely fill out the challenge ballot. Make sure that uh, they record, record it properly. They should be, once again, well-trained in how to do this. Um, but I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't stress about this. I don't think it's going to happen a lot, but that's what I know about it right now. Does that help at all? Yeah, um, and just one follow-up question. Is there any potential for racial profiling with these challenger ideas? Well, it's like I can't answer that question. I mean, uh, there shouldn't be, obviously, if people have good intentions, but people often don't have good intentions during campaigns. Uh, My guess is, once again, you know, that if this is this is a, an announced thing, um, if, if Bob Stefanowski really wants to do this, he'll do it in the cities. So if that says racial profiling to you, then, you know, I mean, if that shoe fits, wear it. But um, I, I'm sure the cities are what he's worried about. He may think also. I mean, that's where obviously a lot of Democratic votes come from. And he may think that they have more lax voter rolls or something. I don't really know what it's all about. But um, if you go, I believe on the Secretary of State's website, there is uh, her statement. We can put it up on the web page for this show. So if you go to wnpr.org slash Colin, um, when this shows, this page is, when the show for this page goes up, we'll try to put the, her, the, her statement about this up. The, that may help or clarify. The most important thing is, like, nobody should ever leave a polling place without filling out a ballot, you know, whether it's a challenge ballot or a provisional ballot or whatever. They might ask you for an affidavit if they don't like your ID. There's like a, there's things that might happen, but don't leave without filling out a ballot. Everybody should conceivably, theoretically, unless there's some certain circumstance I'm not processing in my mind here, be able to fill out some kind of ballot. The challenge ballots often don't get used unless there's unless the case goes to court or something. But they'll be there anyway. They exist and your vote won't get lost. How's that sound? Thank you. Okay. Right. We'll do our best to tell you a little bit more about that. Uh, First of all, tomorrow we're going to do a Citizen Observer show. So if the challenges are coming up, we'll really know at one o'clock tomorrow. But I'll try to get Secretary Merrill's statement. It's actually, well, no, you'll never find it on my page. I'll get it to you. 
I'll make sure you can see it. Go on the show page for this show. Um, so um, here we go. Let's just keep going down the line here. Here's Scott in Manchester. Hi, Scott. Hi, Colin. I was hoping you could help me with my electoral anxiety. Okay. I've got friends on both sides of the traditional two-party system <laughs> saying, Scott, you can't vote for Oz Griebel. You're throwing your vote away. And yet I feel he's the most competent, qualified person for the job. What, what should I do? <laughs> I, I really do think this is not to throw it back at you, but it's a matter of personal philosophy. I mean, uh, the truth is uh, Oz is not going to win. Oz, my personal guess, based on a lot of poll crunching and anything else I can do, I don't think Oz is going to break into double digits. That would be my prediction. I could be wrong, uh, but he's certainly not going to win. So if you want to vote for somebody who's going to win, then don't vote for Oz. <laughs> but if you if you really feel like it's really important to you to express the fact that you're dissatisfied with the two major party choices, then I think it makes perfect, and you think Oz is a lot better, then I think it makes perfect sense. If there's one of the two choices that really strikes you as disastrous, like if it really bothers you, the idea of Governor Stefanowski or Governor Lamont, when I say those things or one of those things, your flesh just curdles or your blood or something, um, then you should you should vote for the other one. All righty. How does, how, is that helpful? Yes. All right. So uh, that's good. I actually helped somebody. That never happens. Uh, let's go to, I like the fact the calls are already here. Let's go to Mark from Wyndham. Hi, Mark. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. Um, the reason I'm calling is I saw an interesting interview on TV this morning of a woman who has voted Republican her whole life, and she said that she just can't vote Republican anymore because of the rhetoric of the president and the fact that no leaders have really stepped up and spoken out against that, and that she just doesn't feel like she can vote Republican anymore. My point, the question is, or my thought is, is that they, when they do polling of all different groups of women, uh, suburban, uh, Latinos, uh, African Americans, they do all these uh, polling to see where people are and where they're going to vote. What are your thoughts about how many people that are Repub former Republicans or Republicans are going to vote for Democrats on their ticket? Well, that's going to be a phenomenon, and, and we're certainly seeing it anecdotally already. And yeah, there was a big piece uh, in The Current uh, about this. I think Daniela Altamari did a piece either Saturday or Sunday uh, about this. Uh, she particularly went down to the Gold Coast, down to the Fairfield County area, where there are, there are, there are people flipping, and they're not just... I mean, my, my initial question about this is, okay, so you flip because you don't like Trump, you, maybe you re-register as unaffiliated, or you re-register as a Democrat, and then you get the ballot in front of you, and you just have never voted that way before. And now what do you do? And are, are you are you going to vote, you know, a certain way in the attorney general race or in the state Senate race? But some of the women that Daniela interviewed were saying, yes, I'm going to vote state Democrat. I don't care. Uh, th that's how I feel right now. I, I, I don't think this is necessarily an easy thing for polling science to throw its arms around if there's that kind of volatility. I mean, they, can, they ask the questions they ask. They'll do the turnout model with the weighting that they do. Uh, but this might be something that has to get studied afterwards, like what effect it really had. Um, right. I mean, exit polls will t tell us more uh, in just a general election autopsy. I'm not really sure that anybody – and also, my other question would be, like, how statistically significant can that group be? Uh, you know, I mean, how many people were you really talking about? I, I do think 
Um, this is, once again, we're really at the point of guesswork these days. It's a very tough election to talk about. I do think women candidates and women voters are l- very possibly the most important variable in this election. In other words, if if it is a, a very much uh, a women-dominated election, and if they turn out way higher than men, I, I, which I think is a very strong possibility, and they have women candidates to vote for, it's a difference maker on a whole bunch of different levels. And if it comes up again, I can say more about that. But I want to get to these calls here. Here's Sam in Manchester. Hi, Sam. You're on the air. Yeah, hi. Uh, so I'm an independent, and uh, tomorrow I'm planning on voting for the first time. I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, I just finished working at the hospital, and uh, I really have to ask a question. The reason I'm voting tomorrow is because of the person who's not on the ballot, President Trump. You know, I'm voting against him basically tomorrow. Now, two years down the line, are the Democrats going to have somebody who's viable candidate, not somebody just going for the sound bites, you think? Oh, this, that, not, if any of us knew... If any of us knew, first of all, you know, we'd be in the fortune telling business instead of political prognostication. I don't think we know the answer to that. I I think it's starting to emerge who the people in the field are, you know, or some of the people in the field are. Um, but I mean, there's such a long sorting process that has to go uh, go on before we really kind of get a sense of maybe even who the two, three, or four front runners. I mean, just for something for you to chew on, one person that doesn't get talked about that much, who I think is probably going to run and probably going to seek the Democratic nomination as opposed to any kind of third party thing, is Michael Bloomberg. Um, and he at least would be a very different kind of candidate than the other candidates. But I don't know. I wish I knew the answer to that, Sam, because I would be like a really important political pundit if I did. But I wouldn't believe anybody who said they did know. But what you want anyway, you want substance, right? You want somebody to talk about real stuff right. instead of just yeah. Yeah, play, play to the favorite topics or whatever. Well, you know, I hope you get that. <laughs> I, w- I wish I had a really good answer, but I'd be lying if I claimed I did. All right. Uh, we have some open lines available now, so I'll give out the number again. 860-275-7266. You can call just to voice your election anxieties or tell a horrible story about a lawn sign or a mail piece or a robocall. Um or tell a wonderful, happy story uh, about something like that. Uh, you can ask questions about what is going to happen tomorrow. You can uh, talk about what you're worried about happening in the polls. All right, so 860-275-7266. I'm going to go to Peter and then to Lauren, and then we'll see where we are. Peter, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, you know, my anxiety has to do with uh, Oz Griebel. And to go back to Scott in Manchester, um, I think his blood should curdle at the thought of uh, Bob Stefanowski. Um, you know, my my big issue is climate change and what Connecticut needs to be doing in that regard. And it's pretty clear from the public statements of Lamont and Stefanowski that Ned Lamont gets it, that there's a real role for the state of Connecticut to play and for government to play in bringing on the new uh, renewable energy economy. And Bob Stefanowski says there's no real role for government there. It's up to business. And if you know anything about state policy and the way uh, energy markets work and regulations, um, the state of Connecticut make it can make it easier for businesses to make the transition to renewable energy, or they can make it hard. Right now, it's too hard. And so 
I would I would urge Scott in Manchester to put some of his feelings aside and be very afraid of where the state would go under Bob Stefanowski with regard to climate change I, issues. I, I totally agree with you. I agree with everything that you just said about, uh, I mean, I, I actually do, and I think I've made this clear, regard Bob Stefanowski as an inadequate candidate. He doesn't, he's barely lived here, first of all. He just moved back here from England after a long time. This would be the first governor we ever elected who really like, hadn't been around very much until recently. To, I can't remember anybody else who's like, you know, had lived overseas that recently. He doesn't know that much about the state government. He doesn't seem that curious to know that much about the state government. He's going to need a really, really good chief of staff. Rumor has that that might be Mark Boughton if he gets elected. Um, but he doesn't seem that interested in what government can do in some of these very serious areas like climate change. I, and Peter, one more thing I'll say. I said this on the wheelhouse like three weeks ago. You can't you can get elected to Congress like Johanna Hayes can get elected to Congress and it'll be a couple of years before they even really let her do a lot of things. It's hard. You know, you get maybe one issue you can work on, get a good committee appointment, something like that. The governorship is the opposite. The first day of office, you got five, six, seven things coming at you, and it never stops. And it, you can't just pick on taxes or, or, you know, or government size or something like that or pension reform to the exclusion of everything else. It is stuff about the environment. It's judicial appointments. It's transportation. Uh, it's labor. It's insurance. It's banking. It's like right down the line. Criminal justice, big, huge uh, piece of this. And, and so you have to multitask. And and he's given no indication that he's capable of doing that. So, but I didn't want to tell Scott from Manchester who to vote for. I just like if your flesh crawls or your blood curdles at the idea of Governor Lamont or Governor Stefanowski, then don't vote for Oz Griebel. Vote for the candidate who doesn't make your flesh crawl because you need to do that. All right. Quick call from Lauren. Then we'll take a break. Then we'll come back. We'll have a brief second segment and then we'll move on to Lewis Black. All right. Here's Lauren in Litchfield. Hi. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I really appreciate it. Um, here in Litchfield, we've got a pretty, uh, probably going to be a tight race. We have the incumbent, David Wilson, who has been here for quite a long time, and I don't know that he's done much as far as I can recall in history. Um, Oop, you're breaking up a little bit, Lauren. Hi, can uh, you hear me now? Yeah, better now, better now, yeah. Okay, sorry. I just wanted to put a call out to all gems here in the 66th district to please come out and vote. Make sure. Call your DTC, see whatever way you can help in these final hours. It's really important. I feel like, as a Democrat, I've been a lifelong dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, um, very far left-leaning. However, I feel like when I look at the Republicans, it's something they do really well. They pull together. They really put all hands to the, to the pump kind of thing, and they just go. You know, I think Democrats, sometimes we separate and do our own thing, and which is okay, you know, that's fine, but we've got to come together. And we really need to get somebody out, and these Republicans got to go. So we need to really pull together. All right, Lauren, thanks for your call. I will quickly say uh, weather forecast, the latest weather forecast that I saw uh, said that it won't be raining in the morning. This really can affect turnout. Uh, it won't be raining in the morning. The rain will come in bursts across the state in the late afternoon and evening. That can affect turnout. What I would say also, just to what Lauren said, Republicans are very, very good about voting. They, they're reliable voters, and they don't need as much of a get-out-the-vote operation as Democrats do. So one of the Democrats have a better get-out-the-vote operation or a better ground game. But the Republicans need it less. They just can be relied upon to get to the polls. All right. We'll get a Michael from New Haven about ballot initiatives. And we've also got Lisa, Jay, Chris, Brian. We won't get to all of them. We'll try. But you can't vote late. The rules will vary. 
can't vote late. The rules will vary from state to state. All right. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is telling me to hurry up here, hurry up here, get these calls on the air. So here's Michael from New Haven. Hi, Michael. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. Thrilled to be talking. Um, so I'm aware a lot of, like a lot of people, I'm kind of set in my ways. I uh, know how I'm going to vote and what party and who I'm going to vote for. But I feel a lot of these people who are going to see these ballot initiatives don't know whether or not they're at all consequential in the least. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit more about them on the air. Sure. Okay, so first of all, warning to everybody, and tell anybody else this too. In some towns, just because of the number of things uh, people on the ballot, the ballot may be two-sided. So everybody should make sure, just look in the back of your ballot and make sure you haven't missed something. Uh, if, if something's on the back of the ballot, the likelihood that it's a ballot question is, is pretty high. Um, so uh, one, of, one of the ballot initiatives, initiatives has to do with uh, transfer of state-owned property. Um, I, I would put both of these ballot initiatives in the same category. It's we don't trust the legislature <laughs> to do the right thing. And I think that's not unreasonable. Uh, in fact, I wasn't going to vote for either one of these ballot initiatives because I, I sort of believe you elect really good legislators and then they do the right thing. But that's not really working right now. So um, so the, the, the one that has to do with state land trop, uh, transfers, what's been happening in particular, there's something called the budget implementer, which is this huge kind of legislative garbage dump at the end of the session. And a lot of times these land swaps will get put in there that haven't been through a public hearing. They haven't been through nothing. So this is an attempt to put the brakes on that and make sure they follow a good process with the transfer of state-owned property or land swaps or land giveaways and stuff like that. Um, As I say, I'm pretty sure I'm going to vote yes on this because I don't trust them anymore. And I think they need to get the message that people don't trust them. The other one has to do with the transportation lockbox. The notion is that tax money uh, that is supposedly designated, if it comes from a gas tax or something like that, to fix roads and other transportation infrastructure um, actually gets spent that way. Um, basically, this is the drunk uncle problem. The legislator legislature is essentially your drunk uncle or your drunk stepdad who comes home, three sheets to the wind, smashes open your piggy bank and takes the money to the track. Um, that's how the legislature acts with money that's designated for other purposes. They do it all the time. <laughs> they just did it with the, you know, uh, with the energy money uh, too, and won a court case. And so I, I you know, yeah. I, once again, it's if you want to send a signal to the legislature, hey, we're watching you and we're tired of you messing about. Um, both of these initiatives are kind of about that. Is that helpful at all? Yeah, it's um, it's better than taking an Ambien. It's a super complicated, but um, I'm sure meaningful uh, issue. Um, is it at all worthwhile talking about how uh, we got these ballot initiatives? Like and everybody's thinking about 2022. Like what, what, either the history of these two, or what could be on the ballot for uh, 2020 that could actually see some legitimate, positive, progressive change? That would be worth talking about. I'm about to run into my Lewis Black uh, interview, so I'm not going to do it now, but let me just say that, first of all, because uh, this is important. First of all, thank, thank you for your call, Michael, and I, you, the questions you ask are really important. Uh, tomorrow uh, at 1 o'clock, we'll be doing our Citizens Observer Show, where people uh, basically, we ask certain people to vote and then tell us what happened. 
uh, or how they felt, how they felt really when they were voting. And then uh, starting at seven o'clock tomorrow night, we're on the air. I'm on the air. Lucy's on the air. John's on the air. We've got experts on the air. We're going to stay on the air at least from seven to nine telling you what happened. That might be a point where we could tell you a little bit more about these ballot questions and how they got on the ballot. Uh, And we'll stay on the air if we don't feel like we've called the races correctly. If we don't really know, we won't uh, just cut away. I mean, we'll also be providing uh, NPR coverage of all the other races, Georgia, Texas, all the ones that you're really excited about, Missouri. So um, this leaves me, I think, with time to get one quick call in the air. Chris, what do you got? Hi there, Colin. I was just wondering if you could answer which candidate do you think most credibly addresses the budget deficit? Um, kind of none, uh, but well, let me, let me rank them. Um, uh, 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 no, I can't actually rank them. I mean, I, I don't think any of them really kn- knows what to do about this. Uh, I would sort of the one thing that I can do is to say that I don't think Stefanowski has any real grasp of this. Uh, there is certainly not a way. Of, it's it's now the case anyway that if you kind of read the fine print of his proposal about eliminating the state income tax, your state income tax will not change according to Bob Stefanowski's plan for the first two years he's in office. So if you're thinking you're going to get some big tax break by electing Bob Stefanowski, that is not what he's saying anymore. And then it might be a phased thing. I'm not really sure that anybody has a really good plan. If I had to trust it to somebody, I would, I'm a little nervous about Oz and the Rainy Day Fund. Um, I don't know. There's, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm probably going to vote for Ned Lamont, but I, I just this isn't a high enthusiasm year for a lot of voters. Uh, and I don't think anybody has a magic wand for this. And the other thing is, whatever you come up with, you've got to get legislative cooperation, which is why the thing that people are not paying enough attention to is who's going to control the legislature after tomorrow night. The Senate could tip Republican really easily. It's 1818 right now. The House is a little trickier. But, you know, the configuration of the two legislative – I mean, we are, we are what's called a trifecta right now, Democratic control of the governorship, the House, and the Senate. It's conceivable we could be a Republican trifecta Wednesday morning. Uh, it could be that all three of those things would flip. I don't think it's super likely, but that could happen. So, you know, it's kind of we'll see and, and who has the kind of managerial chops to make the changes that have to be made. But that wasn't a very good answer to Chris's question, but – but I don't have a good answer. Um, all right. So what um, we're going to do here is we're going to take a break. But first of all, I want to thank Kion Wolf, who's on the board today. Betsy Kaplan, who's been keeping the show running as usual. We're getting ready for Lewis Black right now. Thanks to Carlos Mejia, who's our digital guru. He's the one who's working on this survey monkey monkey survey. Only monkeys are, have answered the survey so far, which is disturbing because I don't think they're our core demographic. Uh, Anyway, uh, Lewis Black is coming right up, and uh, thanks for listening so far. This is, in fact, an honor and a privilege. Lewis Black is with me right now by phone, a stand-up comic, actor, author. You know who he is. Uh, He's going to be at the Schubert Theater in New Haven on Sunday, November 11th, just as we're sort of shaking off whatever the effects of the midterm elections might have been. It'll be at 7 p.m. It's part of his The Jokes on Us tour. Great to hear your voice, Mr. Lewis Black. Well, thank you. 
is this is going to air in all probability on the Monday before Election Day. We're recording it on the Wednesday before that. And, you know, there's that whole idea that comedy is right in front of you. Just it's hard to see it sometimes. I don't know. I'm looking at page one of The New York Times today. I don't see it. I don't see anything remotely funny. I don't see anything that could even be turned into a dark joke uh, with one possible exception. I mean, could you react to that a little bit? You know, you can't. It's not on a daily basis. But, yeah, I mean, basically, uh, you know, you don't have to look at the front page to know that the joke is that basically you can start with the fact there are no adults in the room. Yep. None. You know, and it's perfect because it's Halloween. There are probably more adults dressing up in costumes than there are children. I mean, it's beyond belief. (laughs) The only thing that I can see on page one that's that's sort of, it's not funny exactly, but uh, there's the in-prison murder of Whitey Bulger. And I always feel like if you're going to get around to killing somebody when they're 89, you've kind of missed the chance, really. It's sort of like in The Godfather where he goes back to Sicily and slits the throat of the old guy who you know tried to kill him when he was a boy. It's like yeah. too late, right? It's way too late. It's, I'm surprised he didn't gag on the prison food. It's unbelievable. Right. Struck down in the prime of life, Whitey. This will teach you. You're not going yeah, to make really. it to 90. So I, I want to talk just a, a little bit about what you're talking about these days. I have to say that... Anytime I'm looking at your schedule, which I do constantly, of course, I want to know where you are and what you're doing. And I see like Huntsville, Alabama or something like that. I always wonder, so what's it like when Lewis Black goes into Huntsville, Alabama? Is that the same experience as what you're going to have in New Haven? Or are you really working with an audience whose sensibilities are, are radically different? What's amazing is Huntsville is like going into New Haven, to be honest. To be honest yeah. Really. Yeah. Huntsville is, the story of Huntsville is... People don't really realize that it is not your normal Alabama. Mm-hmm. You now, I've performed in Mobile and Birmingham, and there's a little bit. I do the same act wherever I am. So I'll switch it around a little, or I'll do a little tweak here and there, but nothing. It's, it's kind of drawing them into a thought that I have by slowing things down and kind of coming at them another angle. But I'm basically, it's the same joke. Mm-hmm. But Huntsville is the home of where all of the... Uh, rocket science that took us Ah. out of the atmosphere and got us to the uh, moon. All of that came out of Huntsville. So Werner von Braun and the Germans all went to Huntsville. Ah, so that was a bad example. Huntsville was the wrong example. Well, it's unbelievable, though, because it really was an extraordinary experience. And it was stunning because people, I travel everywhere. People will go to me, why are you going there? And I'll go, you've never been there, so you don't really know. (laughs) <laughs> and Huntsville is really extraordinary. Springfield, Missouri is really extraordinary. I mean, there are places that I've gone and I kind of go, wow, I can't believe this is occurring here. America, the, the map's changing. People really need to start paying more attention to it. And even though it feels like because of this big blasting horn of the, the media and the big blasting horn of the president, the, the ineptitude of Congress and all of it kind of rolling along with the, the madness of about 500 screens, that within that context, the country is kind of unbelievably remarkable from where it was when I started going on the road 25 years ago. I totally agree, and I was wrong to make Huntsville a dividing line. I've spent a lot of time in Alabama anyway and met lots of nice people there. More on the so-called Redneck Riviera of Gulf Shores. But there's still, I don't know, I was watching a Bill Burr special recently that he's in the Ryman, I think, in Nashville. Yeah. And and people are not going for some of his stuff. So you don't encounter that in, in, uh, forget about Huntsville. There aren't places where you go in and do your stuff and people, they're just not going for it just on the basis of politics. They don't go for it. Yell at them. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you do have that option. I go and I go, you know, I've just been in 35 cities where they laughed at this, and what's your degree of difficulty here? <laughs> and you somehow miss the joke because you're tied up in a bunch of nonsense that you think is more important than laughter. So something's wrong with you, it's not wrong with me. And then sometimes I go, it's my fault when I don't get the laugh. And I go, something's wrong with me <laughs> and not you. But I'll yell at him about it. Well, there's also, I think, for people like me, I'm sitting up here in Connecticut with a certain level of geographical narcissism, thinking, wow, people are really angry down there, right? That's like all those red states where all those really angry people are, kind of forgetting that Connecticut people are not completely unfamiliar with anger. You've even, I think, said that you think Connecticut's kind of an angry place. Yeah, I do. And I do. I think it's angry because it's called the nutmeg state, and I've never seen nutmeg there. But I, I mean, really, yeah. where is the nutmeg? Well, that's true. And there are like all kinds of complicated ideas, including one of the theories is that it has to do with grifters, really, that there were these peddlers who would sell wooden nutmegs. The state's motto actually maybe comes from someone trying to defraud somebody else. That's so funny. It would be like if New York was the Madoff state or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, the other thing is, too, about what's interesting, I don't know if it's changed, but when I lived in New Haven for five years yes. and um, the suburbs in New Haven, we would go outside to hang out at bars out there. And that was, we would find was just as kind of rednecky. Now, this is 25 years ago. I don't right. know what it's like now. But it was just as rednecky as all of the other places that were rednecky. It's amazing. That strip of redneck runs everywhere. I should say, so, so you, you must have been in New Haven about, what, 72 to 77, something like that? No, 74 to 79. Okay. So we were there at the same time. I was an undergraduate from 72 to 76. You were at yeah. YDS. I want to bring up something that's a little bit sad, but uh, going over your, your biography, uh, it jumped out at me. We both knew a guy named Rusty McGee, uh, oh, yeah. and Rusty McGee is this was this fabulously talented guy who was working on musicals. I was there watching him work on a musical. I think it was called 1919. It was about the Black Sox scandal, and this guy was kind of off the charts talented uh, as a crafter of musicals. Died incredibly young. This is back in the days when, when you also were very much uh, invested in the idea of playwriting and stuff like that. I have often thought about doing a whole sh show episode of like picking Rusty and two other people whose genius never really you know got all the way because they just died so young. I don't know. Yeah, him, Lori Beachman also died very young. There's a number of them, especially women. Like Marin Maisie just passed away. Yes. A lot of women passed away from. Uh, young, young, talented women passed away from ovarian cancer. Yeah. And Rusty passed away because the idiot didn't read the colonoscopy correctly. I was working with Rusty at that time, and we were running a room in New York City called the West Bank Cafe, and uh, he was a major talent. Oh, God, I mean, yeah. Major. Oh, and God. we had just started to do some gigs around and uh, outside of there because I was running around the country, and every so often I would bring him out as my opening act, and he was... Uh, musically, as, they're few as musically as gifted as he was. Yeah, no, we would be talking about his plays right now the way we're talking about, maybe not quite Hamilton, but as, but close to it, I think. If yeah, he no, he, was, uh, he just never had the opportunity to, to, play it up, to play out his genius. So not that many people make a transition, I don't think anyway, maybe I'm wrong about this, not that many people make a transition from playwright to stand-up. I saw Arthur Miller's stand-up set, and I, I, I never thought... <laughs> That he, he really clicked with the audience the way he could have. Anyway. Well, that was dour. He was a little dour for the <laughs> Eugene O'Neill, very funny guy. His 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 five minutes was terrific. So no, I mean I don't know who who else besides you does this. It's an un unusual thing to do. 
It was unusual. I think Robert Klein came out of the drama school and went mm -hmm. into stand-up, but he was an actor. A lot of actors do it. I don't think there are a lot of playwrights who do it. Um, I've known writers who've kind of dabbled in it, but for me, it just was I was doing it on the side for fun, and what I guess the playwriting did was allow me to, to really kind of learn how to instinctively write for myself and to tell stories. I'm wondering about that, too, because it seems as though, although a play ultimately takes place in front of an audience, the audience is in some way part of a collaboration between playwright, actors, director. But there's a way in which stand-up, I think every night, you create, so, you, you have something that you've written that you're going to do. As you say, you don't do the jokes differently depending on where you are. But I've watched you on stage. You're, you're creating something with the audience every night, right? Yeah, no, it is... Uh... It has to do with my theater background. And also, I'm very conscious of the fact that that fourth wall is very tenuous to me because I played a lot of clubs. When that wall drops, you know, you be conscious of the fact that it drops and be able to play with it and play with the audience. And, and I like playing with the audience. It's, uh, you know, you end up going in there wanting it to be, they saw something that the next night, a different group of people will see something completely different. It's, it's special for them, hopefully. Absolutely. So uh, let's hear a little bit of you with an audience. This is you in Orlando, Florida, sort of last week, urging people to vote. The reason you walk into a voting booth, don't give me the I gotta vote that night. I don't give a. I don't care that you don't think it makes a difference. You. People died so that you could go into that goddamn voting booth. And then maybe eventually it won't be just Democrats and Republicans. Maybe some other schmucks will show up who actually speak English and can talk to us and say things. Because I'll tell you, the reason you vote, quite simply, is this: for those of you who are so difficult. You go in there and vote and because it's going to be the most miserable day you're going to have all year. And what's good about that is every day that follows you go, today was but at least I didn't have to vote. I guess I'll ask a, a specific question, which is, in a way that's become almost a cliche, Lewis Black and anger are inevitably linked. If you have a message to get across, you'll get it across in the angriest way you possibly can. When did you realize that your anger was funny? It really is what you learn when you you start to learn stand-up and mm -hmm. you try to find what is unique about you and your vision or your voice. And um, somebody came up to me and said, you know, you're really angry and you're not yelling. <laughs> and you should be yelling. It was a comic I knew named Dan Ballard, and he said, you should be yelling. And he said, I'm not. I'm on stage yelling, and I'm not, there's no reason for me to be yelling. So when you go on stage, I just want you to yell the whole act. And it was really literally a revelation. Because what I would do when I would yell... Because I was so, just didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't understand the craft. I would turn around and face the wall and yell at the wall rather than yell at the audience. <laughs> but you don't yell all the time. I've seen your stand-up act. There's the famous uh, thing that Matt Damon recently did about Kavanaugh. And he comes out and he goes, I'm going to start at 11 and I'm going to take it up to 15 real quick. You don't do that. Uh, you don't start at 11. You build. I used to start at 11 and go to 15 and yeah. then go to 20. When I first started <laughs> running, going on the road and was playing clubs, and I wouldn't take a breath because I was afraid as soon as I did, they would come, you know, they, I would have hecklers. But since then, I've kind of learned that it's an instrument. You've got to kind of play all sorts of notes. There's all sorts of ways to express anger other than yelling. Do you think you really are an angry person or angrier than usual person? I mean, like, right now, you don't seem that angry. No, I'm not. I don't think so. There's certain things that 
you push a certain button and I get enraged. I wake up and you're going to tell me you're sending, you know, 8,000 troops down to, to meet 4,000 people who are wandering up, who are traveling 2,500 miles <laughs> through hellish temperatures, humidity, and you're going to send people down there to stop them. Like the people just go, you know, that that's what people do, that they go 2,500 miles because they're, you know, you've got to be running from something that scares the hell out of you. Someone somewhere will crack the code at some point and flip it back. I almost feel as if there's like a dial and somebody flipped the dial over completely. And we're, it's, it's just bizarre. Up is down, down is up. And eventually, I believe we'll bounce back. I truly believe that because I believe that most people in their heart of hearts in this country, I have a tremendous amount of optimism because I believe really the American people get it. Most of them. Right. You, you might be one of the very few people experiencing optimism now, and it might be have something to do with the fact that you have explored the depths of pessimism more fully than most of us. Well, uh, also because when something horrible happens, people get in their cars and drive there, and they don't know anybody who's there, and right. they want to help. Yep. They keep yelling about his base and all of that, and it... It really is just a lack of leadership from somebody coming from not just the Democrats, the Republicans. I mean, it's what I keep saying. There are no adults in the room. There has to be someone who stands up and acts like an adult. That's the hardest thing for me about comedy now. Yeah. My job as a comic is to be the kid. Mm -hmm. I'm the child. I'm the guy who points at these people and goes, look at that. Ha, ha, ha. His pants are down. And now I'm forced to be the one to be the adult. Right. And that's not funny. That dynamic isn't funny. Yeah. Uh, but no. I have to stand there at times and go, look, you've got to be an adult. Well, it you is. You can't allow this nonsense to go on. It is. Because, you, you know, they, 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 no one came out and said anything. Nobody <laughs> from either side came out and really went, here's what I've got to say about this. Okay, we're like at eight or nine right now. That's good. Um, <laughs> and But, you know, it is potentially funny that you have to do this. It's not funny in, uh, in the way of our, living our lives, but the notion that Lewis Black has to come and explain to the president of the United States how to be a civil person, to engage in civil dialogue with other people, the idea that you are thrust into the role of kindergarten teacher, that is yeah. sort of funny. It is funny. And I actually have a, uh, a section of my act that goes into it. Well, let's, let's talk about how your anger is so famous that almost at the level of Greek myth, it's been turned into an abstraction. Let's hear what that sounds like. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Ah! Right, right, here comes an airplane. This is the movie Inside Out. What was it like for you, first of all, to be approached about this idea that you would become kind of the abstraction and embodiment of anger? That was a tremendous compliment. <laughs> I'd, I'd accomplished something with this nonsense, and it, it made a difference. And, and to be in that movie, in that animation, was kind of extraordinary because it was really, uh, I think it was an important piece of work because my generation... Literally was born and raised without any sense of what emotions were. <laughs> like it wasn't until most of my generation was in their late 30s when they went, oh, that's right. There's more than just hunger. <laughs> you know, kids really got, I would have loved to have seen this movie when I was seven or eight years old. 
and then seen it again at nine so that I began to understand, oh, there's this, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this. I have a, a quick story that I, I think I can tell quickly that you might find amusing that I have really never told publicly before about this movie. So I'm somebody who does not use any drugs. I just, I'm not a drug person. I'm an alcohol person. Uh, I'm not proud of that. And so somebody, I'm not going to say who, and I've never also ever told that person this story, but somebody gave me some sublingual medical marijuana, which I tried. And my reaction was to be completely convinced that I was dying. That was like the only. Yeah, and so so the person in my house said, well, why don't you try to watch something kind of comforting? And so I kept trying to watch. I tried to watch Enchanted and I couldn't understand it. The plot was like way too complicated. So then I made the mistake of switching to Inside Out, which was a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> like this this notion of these strange little uh, emotional abstractions walking around t- talking I was truly it was like I couldn't have been more scared if I'd watched some amalgam of Halloween and The Exorcist it was like this completely terrifying movie oh you know, yeah and especially with those visuals oh. <laughs> So you and I are having a similar uh, reaction to our own generation, to baby boomers, to being baby boomers. I'm going to play a little clip. This is from a set that you did, I think, in 2015. And if you provided us with the proper seating (laughs) and proper plumbing and brought us whatever nutrition and drinks, drugs, whatever it takes to sustain life in our body, we would sit there until the day we died and talk to you about any goddamn thing you wanted. We don't have to know it. Nuclear physics, son of a I thought you'd never ask. And then we'll go on to do what we were born to do, which is bull We're magnificent at it. You kids out there, you're interested in facts. That'll serve you in good stead. We never had an interest in facts, which is why things have turned out the way they are. But we were more creative. What do we know about nuclear physics? We know probably neutron, proton, molecule, atom. Four words, and we'll sit there and go on for hours. Hours, just weaving tales of nonsense, and we don't have a all idea of what we're talking about. But we don't care. We just enjoy listening to the sound of our own goddamn voices. This is exactly Lewis Black. We should say, by the way, Lewis Black is who I'm talking to. He's going to be in New Haven on 11-11. That should be easy for you to remember. That's uh, November 11th at the Schubert Theater in New Haven. This is where my mind has been going a lot lately. And, and one of the places that I've seen it turning up, turning up, it really bothers me, are people from our generation who do this thing. I guarantee you've heard them do this, where they say, I don't like hip-hop. I just I don't even know if it's music, you know? Like Cardi B, what does she do? Who, you know, who is she? Should I? You know, and I'm thinking, we made everybody listen to our music. We thought anybody who didn't like our music in 1972 was some yeah. kind of fascist jerk. But now it's kind of like, I don't think I like that. I don't really identify with that. Like, it has to justify itself to our generation. There has never been a more self-involved group of people, unfortunately, than we are. Sadly. Well, I mean, it, was, it became that because uh, we were going to change the world, and then we realized that we weren't going to do that. So we, we kind of wandered off <laughs> into the woods. I want to ask you about whether you think doing the kind of comedy that you do is therapeutic for you. I actually read somewhere where you said that somebody tested your blood pressure. Or there was somebody from Esquire yeah. early, early on hooked me up to a uh, blood pressure monitor and then would taunt me with stuff and I would yell and scream and then 
we would wait to see how fast it would be for my um, blood pressure to return to normal, and it was like within two minutes. It was crazy. <laughs> so it might be a, you're, you recently turned 70. I hope I'm allowed to say yeah. that. And you sound like you're thriving. Maybe this is like the best thing you could be doing. Well, I think that yelling and screaming helps. I think that using that F word is, uh, you know, if you let that rip once a day, that'll help. It gets rid of some, it gets rid of toxins. Right. I really, I kind of believe that. I think that they're just letting it go. Because people always come up to me and go, boy, you kind of do that. You know, you do what I would like to do, or you're the funny version of my father. And I think that that kind of anger makes it, you know, that if you let it rip, you know, find a space for it, that it gets rid of a lot of stuff. It's like, you know, I mean, some people jog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Idiots. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I bargained for a half an hour of your time. I've gotten it. Uh, I'm thrilled to have gotten it, Lewis Black. I'll just end with one or two quick questions. It's about when you want to watch some stand-up, who do you watch? Kathleen Madigan is a good friend of mine. I think she's coming into her own mm-hmm. right now. I mean, she's always been really funny, but she's really hit her stride now. She's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, Netflix, Ted Alejandro has a new uh, special. Yeah. Bill Burr, I really love. Gaffigan, Judy Gold. Um, the list is really kind of endless. Yeah. You like comedians. I really do like a lot of them. My friend Mike Wilmot out of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really could go on and on and on. Well, uh, Lewis Black, uh, we like you. We're excited that you're coming to New Haven on November 11th to the Schubert Theater. Thanks, Lewis. Okay, Bye-bye. great. Bye-bye. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you made. Other things just make you swear and curse When you're chewing on life's gristle That grumble, give a whistle And this'll help things turn out for the best And always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life Life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing Ain't hey, oh.